So let's say some of us wanted to take a half an hour every night and be disciplined about it. It would be a good practice for some people, not, not too advanced in, in practice. A good way to spend that half an hour. A good way of spending that half an hour every day is to start with bringing the body into balance. Start with bringing attention into the body. Start with feeling what is present when you do that. And start feeling what are your reactions to what's present when you do that. That would be a really useful way of spending half an hour every day. What's better to do is what is the best for you. So, you know, we've got a whole bunch of people in this room, and within this whole bunch of people, you're going to have a whole different diversity between what's better for them. Some are morning people, some are night people. Some people really thrive on structure. They know where to find themselves and how to locate. They know how to bring energy at times of difficulty when there's structure. Other people suffocate to death in structure, you know? So it's like what's needed is very much dependent on who you are and how you operate. So I'm reluctant to give boxes because I don't do very well in boxes. And if you need a box, then I will absolutely support you to finding a box that works best for you. Mm. Can you say a bit more about what you hope to do with your monastery and why it was not possible I see that we are in a very important time in our evolution as people on this planet. And I see that what is needed is a way to um, attend to some of the global problems that we have. And I also see that I haven't found anything that's more powerful than the training that I've received as a Buddhist nun in giving preparation and tools and skills and resource for being able to deal that. So not only does it give me more capacity to navigate my own internal worlds, but also it gives me more strength and resource for dealing with other people. Okay, And as a group of sisters, one of the things that we have had to do because of the situation that we were in was hold open a continuum so that Teachings tend to come across where the transcendent element of the continuum is emphasized over the imminent and relational element. So the sense of if you watch it arise and cease, that that's ultimately where freedom will lie, is watching things arise and cease and resting in awareness. And that's the place where the good stuff is, you know, in that unborn, undying knowing, okay? But the way the teachings come across and the way they're often practiced is, is that that undying knowing often happens at the expense of what's happening with you and how you're relating to this conversation now as we're talking. So that's a secondary concern over the primary concern, which is staying in relationship with the transcendent. The sisters could not do that. The sisters had to keep the continuum entirely alive, not have one end of the continuum at the expense of the other end of the continuum. Okay? And the way that that happened was after many, many, many years of the sisters working with quite a lot of challenges that we had in our own community and trying to navigate skillful ways of dealing with them. 
Part of the challenges that we were having to navigate in our community was we were a small group of women in a monastery that was organized around men and their values and their rules and their lineage and their tradition. And as women, you know, there was not a whole lot of appreciation or seeing recognition of who we were and what we had to offer. And any time you've got a subgroup of people and a larger group of people where they're not seen or valued or recognized, you've got a classic dynamic that's set up, particularly when that subgroup is dependent on that larger group for their needs, okay? And that classic dynamic you can see across cultures and across countries and across socioeconomic backgrounds. It's just, it's classic, you know. And so what we found was in order to navigate this dilemma, which is that we were grateful for having access to the liberating teachings and the opportunity to practice, we had to come to terms with what was going on for us personally and what was going on for us collectively. And that coming to terms was a big thing. It was not a weekend project, all right? Because, you know, it's hard to explain, really, how complicated that was and what that actually resulted in in short, in a few minutes. But but what would happen is is that the sisters would, would consolidate and fracture, consolidate and fracture, consolidate and fracture, consolidate and fracture. And as is classically the case, when you are a subgroup in a larger group where there's unconscious antipathy towards the smaller group, that the tension and resistance and frustration that we had towards the larger group was not expressed towards them but enacted towards each other. That's classic. It happens across the board. Okay? So within the nuns' community, there wasn't a lot of trust and safety within the group for many years until we started to actually do this work of looking at what was our own personal contribution to that and what was the collective situation that we were having to navigate and begin to pull it apart. Okay, As the sisters began to get more confident in being able to do this work and talk about what was actually happening, then we got more able to be able to hold the, 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 the dilemma, which is, is that we're all grateful for having this opportunity, and yet we're trying to do this in a context where we're navigating stuff that is culturally something that doesn't make any sense to us. So the strict hierarchy or the deference to the monks uh, at, at the expense of the nuns had effects. And because we were in a situation where we were told if we surrender to the form and we just surrender to the teachings, then the transcendent liberation that all of this good stuff will come from will liberate us from any kind of wishing that it would be otherwise. We all said, all right, so we'll try and do this more. You know, we'll try and do this harder, we'll try and do this more, and we'll give ourselves fully to it. But over a period of 15 or 20 years, as the senior nuns got more senior, we realized that it wasn't just a question of surrendering to the form, but it was a question of trying to figure out how that the carpet wasn't getting pulled out from under our feet at regular intervals out of our control. And, and so it wasn't just a question of, of um, being resistance to the form. It was a question of actually seeing the effects of certain kinds of conditioning on our confidence and our capacity to see clearly. And as we got more senior, or as I got more senior, I could see that this is actually stuff which is not really helpful. In fact, it's not helpful. It's harmful. 
And because we're in a kind of a, a tangle or a twist with the monastery about what they could negotiate and what power we had to negotiate, we couldn't change anything unless we had consent from the monks and the community. All right? You get the picture? All right. So the sisters got more confident, and as we got more confident, we got more able to articulate. And what was really interesting is, is that the more skilled and resourced we were at being able to explain the dilemma without moving out of empathetic resonance, the more congruent we became as a community in terms of our own collective sense of what was happening and what was needed, the less impressed the monks were. (laughs) And so the last few years, there was a little bit of a, what do you say, a crisis, a retrenchment of patriarchal values, a war. I mean, I don't know what language you use. They all have its applications that have their relevance. But the sisters got confident and were pointing out things, and the monks said, you know, no, you can't change this. And they started shouting and said, basically, the tradition is patriarchy, the tradition is hierarchy, the the monastic discipline cannot change, the tradition cannot change. Basically, there's the door. This is what we have. You bow or leave. So they said, effectively, you know, we are the sole holders of the tradition. We make the rules. We decide whether or not you have the right to exist or not. It doesn't matter if you've been here 30 years. And anyway, there are a number of things of this kind of thing that happened. And I said to them after there had been, for me, quite a considerable transgression of boundaries. So it wasn't only that, but, you know, use of intimidation and aggression and threats to get us to do stuff that, for me, was like, no, I don't do things like that, and I don't go along with stuff like that. So I said, no. I won't participate. And not participating in something because I was threatened and there was aggression and all the rest of it, there wasn't an interest to know why I didn't participate. There was just an interest to force me to participate and to apologize for my grossly wrong error. And I said, you know, I don't know what's going on here, but it's like the rules have changed. The gravitational <coughs> force has changed. So I, I left and I left the formal affiliations of that community because it became clear to me that what we were up against was not something that they could move with. Yeah. So we had spent, I had spent the better part of 20 years trying to negotiate this stuff within the community, with dialogue, with conversation, with... And that we just hit reinforced concrete, where, and then just this massive retrenchment and this fear tactics to get us to do stuff. And I said, that ain't my game. Yeah. So I left. And when I left, I came to the States, you know, and it's it takes a little while to transition from being in a community for 20 years to leaving. But what I have had a sense of for many years now is, is that it's absolutely imperative that we move out of this patriarchal stuff because it's deadly. You know, it actually kills people spiritually the kind of twists and contortions that they have to navigate in order to stay in that system dries them up and twists them up and actually it is it is harmful. So I knew I could not any longer do that. And I knew a new way needed to happen. And I knew that it couldn't happen in England. And I knew that our attempts to make it happen in California as a branch monastery were also squashed. So I set out on my own. 
Has your practice changed since coming here? Yeah. I imagine trying to practice with a lot of anger and a lot of maybe resentment and hurt. In the monastery in England probably had a pretty um, big effect on you in your process of being a monk, in your practice of being a, a nun. So now that you're here, you've had sort of a personal liberation in a sense. The territory has shifted, the practice hasn't shifted. So I was surprised by how impacted I was by what living in that circumstance was like. It's taken a lot more to um, heal than I would have than I would have thought. I thought I had been managing it better when I was in it. And I didn't realize how impactful, you know, the kinds of stuff that happened when I left was. So that and then, and then, as my life force energy starts to c- become more accessible, it's like, my goodness, you know, my goodness, you know, it's like, you know, when you've been under a ten thousand pound stone, and then the stone is lifted off, you know, there's two times when things are really stressful. One stressful is when the ten thousand pound stone first settles on your head, and the next is when it lifts off. And, you know, to navigate that has been, you know, full-time work. You know, it's been, it hasn't been an easy journey. But, you know, the team is winning, and I've got the resources to help me attend to the different layers that need to be attended to. And so it's unfolding in a helpful way. But the practice hasn't changed. The practice is the same. It's just the territory has been a little bit different. But in some ways, you know, one of the things which is such an irony, it's such an irony, is is that, you know, one of the things which is so, you wouldn't necessarily think, but what a monastery has taught me how to do is really to um, trust the process, stand in the unknown, and to trust myself. And those things enabled me to do this. So the monastery helped me stand up to the monastery and leave the monastery. You know, the teachings of my teachers helped me, give me the confidence to stand up to my teachers and leave my teachers. And I feel absolutely grateful. You know. Even while some of the territory of what we've had to navigate has been absolutely unsavory. I mean, it's blood-curdling. I don't talk about it very easily because it's like, it's sordid, you know? It's sordid stuff, you know? It's like, you know, I have to know that it's okay to talk about before I talk about it. Um, you spoke about the way that practice was always a priority from the time that you discovered meditation. And, um, I love considering that practice is um, sort of something that doesn't depend on context. We spoke about the way that we were able to practice in the monastery in the world. But I was wondering, did you ever come up against any obstacles where suddenly it seemed like practice was being deflected and that you found yourself struggling to just get into the space of practice or things like like drawing you out of the space of practice or like what or if not what was it that was able that made you able to always go back to that 
Well, I remember the first couple years when I started practicing. I had the idea that practice was my priority, but practice, in fact, wasn't my priority. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't remember what the context was, but something had happened, and I was in a tizzy fit about something or another, and emotionally distraught and distressed and, you know, upset and just, you know, you know what it's like. Yes. And I run into somebody in Berkeley, you know, and this guy was like a professional Dharma bum where he'd go from one three-month retreat to the next three-month retreat and, you know, and he'd have a job only long enough to pay for his retreat and then he'd come back and he'd work for two months and then he'd go back on retreat. He was like that. You know, and I was, you know, I was in some kind of a, of a of something. I don't even remember what it was about. And I remember him just very kindly looking at me and saying, you know, it's good not to take these things too seriously. And I thought, how on earth do you manage that? <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I get into hissy fits all the time. And how do you manage it when it seems so overwhelmingly important? When it seems like We're losing our country right in front of our eyes, and nobody's paying attention, and nobody's upset. So I figure I have to be upset for everybody who's apathetic and not caring. (laughs) I mean, I know it doesn't help, and I can sit down and meditate that and calm myself down, but then I hear something on the news, and I'm like, how do you not take it seriously when it is, in some level, serious? So, you know... Obviously, this is an important question, yeah? So, you know, one of the things that I I noticed for myself living in the monastery. So, you know, I grew up in California. I never for one second thought I was a feminist. I was just normal. <laughs> I mean, it's just normal that you don't punish people because of their gender, you know? That's not really very sophisticated. You know, <laughs> so there would be weird things that would happen, and I would fly into a fit, you know, and I would go into some kind of a rage or whatever, and then I'd have to figure out what was going on for myself. So one of the stories that happened that was really interesting for me when I was a novice, so I wasn't even in, in I didn't even have the higher ordination. I was still an eight precept novice, yeah, and and uh, in the monastery, the way it used to be is is that the that everybody could make this gesture to the monk. So this is a gesture of respect. Yeah, Anjali, it's a gesture of respect. And the monks were not allowed by their monastic discipline to reciprocate that gesture to anybody who wasn't a monk. Okay? So I figured this out and was having kind of a, uh, a tantrum. And I went to go speak to one of the monks, and the monk said, check it out, the monk said, the nuns have a greater opportunity for practicing humility. I wanted to flatten him. I wanted to lay him out cold. I mean, it was like, I, I, I was absolutely livid. I mean, can you imagine such a response? Not from a monk. So I went out to the forest and I was walking back and forth and walking back and forth, fuming and absolutely furious with this self-righteous rage about how dare he, I mean, how dare he, honestly. And then there was one small little voice that said, you know, if I gave up the anger, 
I was letting down the cause. And I thought, well, that's very curious. You gave up the anger you had? I'd be abandoning the cause. And I thought, that's very curious. What is that all about? And so I could see that there was some kind of an identification with anger as putting me in a... um, It was supporting the sense of who I was, that if I gave up the anger, that I was letting down something that I valued. All right? And then I realized, well, actually, that's not why I ordained. I didn't ordain in order to fight the cause. I ordained in order to liberate. You know? And so for many years, I was able to see that actually what I needed to do was work on the anger that was arising in me. That was my primary practice, was to do that. And what I did in that particular situation was I said, well, listen, you know, it's actually a very beautiful thing to live in a way where you're being respectful to others. That's beautiful. And if they can't reciprocate, that's actually their problem. It's not my problem, and I don't need to make it my problem. It's theirs. Let them figure it out, you know? So for many years, I could figure that out that way, you know, that it actually wasn't my problem, it was their problem. When I began to see that this stuff wasn't just about their problem, but it was conditioning us so that we were not able to see clearly, so that we were constantly undermining our own confidence, then it changed. It was no longer anger. It was conviction. And as conviction, it was so much more powerful. It was like hugely more powerful. And I trusted conviction. So when this all shifted in the monastery and I said, no, I've had enough, it was conviction. It wasn't anger. It was absolute clarity in the marrow of my bones. This is damaging. I am not participating in it. And it doesn't matter what the consequences are. I am prepared to risk everything I know and have in order to stand on what I know to be truth. It was not an opinion. It was in my bones. And I wasn't angry, and I didn't shout, and there was no tantrum, and there was no hissy fit, and I was appropriate with every person that I had contact with, and I honestly did not care what the consequences were. I knew I had to do it. So for me... This took close to 20 years to deconstruct the anger that I kept feeling about this stuff until it shifted into conviction. And when it shifted in conviction, the strength behind was just really strong. Now, it doesn't mean that we have to sit in the monastery on a cushion and be silent for 20 years until we have no trace of anger before we can act. But every time we are having a reaction, then that's our place to work. And it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Um, I just remember uh, I read in a book that initially when the Buddha's stepmother, his aunt, um, wanted to be known. He actually rejected only after the venerable Ananta uh, persuaded him and that he agreed. I'm just uh, interested to know your interpretation of that story. So welcome to the dilemma, 
which is is that embedded in the Vinaya scriptures and in the teachings themselves is the basis that justifies this hierarchy and this patriarchy and the discrimination between men and women. Scholars have said, Janet Chiazzo said, that this stuff, that story, and the stuff around that story, which is the eight Garadamas, which is the requirement that was given in order for the uh, Mahapajapati to become ordained, according to text-critical data, was something that came 200 years after the Buddha lived. All right? So what Professor Janet Gyatso said, and what many, 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 many other scholars have said, is, is that that actually is not accurate. All right? Scholarship, as wonderful as it is, is speculative. How do you know? Some say yes, some say no. All right? The way I deal with it is this way. You know, we also have references in the scriptures about how to deal with slaves. There's proper ways of dealing with slaves and improper ways of dealing with slaves. Now, I would not use that as a justification for encouraging anybody to go have slaves. So what that points to is, is, is that the culture has moved on. And what was acceptable 2,500 years ago is no longer acceptable in certain circumstances. So even though there are scriptural references about how you deal with slaves, we don't have slaves. And that's not an issue. Nobody's confused about that. And there's no war going on about whether Buddhists should have slaves. Okay? The same is true with this gender stuff. We know categorically... It has been proven beyond any shadow of a doubt that living with prejudice and discrimination is harmful. We know that. It's not speculative. It is absolutely categorically proven. And it's our law. It's our contemporary law. So independent of what the Buddha said, independent of whether it was text critical or not text critical, whether it was 100 or 200 or 300 before or after all the rest of that, we've moved past that. And what I know to be true is is that one of the principal teachings of the Buddha is do no harm. So it absolutely makes no sense to have structures in the community which are institutionalized forms of harm. If the monastery can't figure it out, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to live that way. It doesn't make any sense to me to live when I know that stuff is harmful. So there's a whole academic way of relating to this stuff, and there's an intuitive way of relating to this stuff, and whether these things come together or not, I'm not entirely sure. They seem to be. It seems to be that the scholarship is actually supportive of the fact that this is not stuff that we should be following. But that's not where my conviction is coming from. My conviction is coming from You know, I took very seriously the commitment not to harm. And I cannot do things which I know are harmful. So we have to find a way. We have to find a way. And it's not comfortable, and it is messy, and it is something that's unpleasant. But we have to find a way. Does that answer your question? Because 
there might be similar problems but between the senior and the junior. What would you do in your monastery to prevent such problems in the future? There is a difference between uh, a hierarchical order of things that happens within a group of people who are the same sex and the kind of discrimination that happens on the basis of gender. There is a difference between that. That doesn't mean that there aren't problems between nuns and there aren't problems between monks. The sisters over the 30 years that the community had established made quite a lot of... of, um, change from the vertical hierarchy that we started with to a much more collaborative team leadership model that it ended up with. Um, The problem with all of these things is that you can't institutionalize enlightenment. You can't legalize enlightenment. You can't create structures that guarantees that enlightenment is going to be the result. Yeah. So what I know to be the case is is that for a lot of people, the issues around power and authority are very uh, tricky, both in terms of holding it in a skillful way and then responding to it in a skillful way. And so for me, the way to deal with that is to have a collaborative leadership team that is open to feedback and where the individuals are committed to watching what arises to them when they are either in positions of leadership and have power or they are in positions of receiving other people's guidance. And to me, that's not a guarantee, but the commitment to practice, the authenticity and the transparency, and the movement towards models which are more suitable for the way I've seen women work is a the best that I can move with. Thank you for your question. Yes. Um, So I was wondering, would you present your teachings differently to a teenager or a younger child? With a teenager, I probably swear more. (laughs) The Dharma punks have taught me the value of swearing more. (laughs) It helps them relax. (laughs) With young children, I think what's really helpful is not to try and teach them, but to try and model for them and to like create open space where they can join you, but not to try and teach. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a, a family camp for, for, for children for, well, since the beginning of the monastery at Amravati, and they had families come, and, and that was the guidance that we gave the parents, is not try and teach their kids. You know, just try and model for them and open, open up a space where they can come and join, you know, sit quietly with mom or dad. And then let them take the initiative, you know. Um, you know, in a monastery situation, they come regularly to the monastery. There's precept ceremonies, and there's chanting, and there's puchas, and there's all kinds of stuff. And it certainly is a beautiful thing to expose children to that. It's also a beautiful thing to expose them to generosity. So, you know, one of the real um, beauties of an Asian culture is that how deeply embedded generosity is in it. And, you know, we saw that 
that it was important for some of our Asian friends to come to the monastery, you know, on the way home from the hospital when the baby was born. First stop is to the monastery. And they come infant, you know, they're just so teeny tiny, they're just, you know, still wet behind the ears. And the mom holds the baby with the hand and the spoon of rice and the like the first thing to teach them is to put the spoon of rice in the alms bowl, you know. Just absolutely infant, and that's like the kind of first thing, is that you, you offer, you are generous, and you support the Sangha. That's beautiful, you know. That's really beautiful to teach that way. You mentioned the intimacies in the monastery, and forgive my ignorance, I always thought of nuns and monks as taking a vow of celibacy. We are celibacy. We are. So when you were talking about mm-hmm. people coming to terms with their sexuality, mm-hmm. you meant as what, a thought experiment? Or, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, it, it might be surprising, but when you are ordained, it does not go away. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, for some of us, it's a journey through fire, and through others, it's very soft and sweet and like a duck to water. But the whole journey of navigating one's sexuality is a journey which has to be met and embraced, and that's true whether one is in robes or out of robes, whether one is in partnership or not. It's an internal relationship with what is, as well as when you're in partnership, you can engage in the activity. But the territory is the same, even if the practices are different. Does everyone understand? I don't understand. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. So when you talked about intimacies, did you mean physical? or We are celibate. We are right. not engaged in any kind of sexual activity. That's what it means to be celibate. Being a human being means that we have a body, and in our body is the whole process of sexuality. That exists independent of whether you are engaging in sexual practices with another person or not. That's all there. It doesn't go away. And so that needs to be navigated. One needs to come to terms with that. So when you are committed to celibacy, then it's clear that the way that one navigates that is not through engaging in any kind of sexual activity. It's through understanding how that energy arises, learning how to work with it, how to spread it, how to transform it, how to see the desire and craving connected to it, how to see the heart opening around it, how it gives vitality to the system when it is moving in a particular direction, how it causes poor health and depression when it's not allowed. That's all navigating the territory. So I, you know, one of the, I love my punks. I just do love my punks. (laughs) So I asked one of the leaders of the punks if they thought there would be some interest if I gave a talk on the subject of Love, sex, and awakening. (laughs) And it came back in vernacular. Yes. (laughs) 
But the funny little joke that I didn't manage to say during that talk was is that, you know, for the last 20 years, you know, I have had occasions of filling out forms, you know. And on forms, they have all kinds of different personal information that they ask. And usually there's a question about sex. And for the last 20 years, I have wanted to put none. (laughs) (laughs) Do do people have couples relationships that are celibate? or, Or pairing doesn't? Pair bonding, which is so natural doesn't occur? I mean, people fall in love with each other, yeah. yeah, but there's all kinds of stuff about how to navigate that. That's not the done thing in the monastery, you know. It's an internal experience, you know, navigating this as an internal practice. Well, your answer is what I had surmised. I got thrown off when you used the word intimacies because then I tried to imagine, well, what does that mean? Yeah, and understandably, it was a wrong use of language. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Well, I I guess what I wanted to say is that I don't think you did misuse, you know, words. Oh, okay. It's just that I think we, like, you know, society wants to make up intimacy, define intimacy by how much physical contact you've had with someone. Right, you know, yeah. Like, and oh, now it's a relationship. Right, know, that's right. right. Yeah, and this society tends to be completely, um, I don't know what the word is, obsessed. You know, it's probably a pretty accurate word. And, you know, a person locates themselves through relationship with others. You know, there's all kinds of stuff that goes on that is really, there's lots of room for looking at and questioning as to see, you know, how much of this is helpful and not. And... Again, there's ironies, which is, is that some of the most people who are the most available and the most having the most capacity for intimacy are the celibates in the monastery. So it's not about the kind of skin contact, it's the question of availability and presence with. And because that is the sum total of our practice, being present with what's arising, then you know some people experience that there's an ability that, of meeting another, which is... It's very um, deeply appreciated, and it's seen, you know. But because it's not sexual, then it means that it doesn't specific to an individual. You know, there's much more of a universal application. But it's not just with the it's not just with the two-footed people. You know, it's with all the people. It's with the four-footed, and it's the feathered, and it's the tree people, and the rock people. It's you know, that sense of being able to be present with what is in all of its manifestations. It's rich material because these are strong forces and also, you know, this continuum of, of, the, of the sexual energy, the life force energy and the transcendent union, you know, to me is also one continuum. It's not that they're separate, con- distinct things. Obviously, you know, in sexual energy, when it has this sexual component to it, there's craving in it. There's a lot of desire. But when the desire factor begins to shift out, then it, it, it is the same energy force, but it's, it doesn't have the same craving to it. It's not separate from that longing and that sense of union, that sense of being at one with, that can happen when, the, when, when, the, when there's that resting and... and in, in, in awareness. I experience it. This is not stuff that I read in the scriptures. This is my personal experience. 
said, if one were to be in a community where there is an active discussion about you have located your reasons in your own experience. And I'm wondering how I would go about explaining your reasons and your experience, the choices that you've made within the context of the discussion of my community, where this is a debate. There's an active discussion about um, the role of the patriarchy in the transmission of And I would like to be a good carrier and have the skillful means to present what you have presented here today. And I don't know how to do it without being you. So, <laughs> how would you recommend to be you you know what resonates with you as being right and true you know what is where's your interest lie you know what are you interested in researching and finding out more about what are you interested in investigating more and understanding how it relates to things that you see are principles rather than personal qualities about all of this stuff and from that perspective, hold the argument or hold the debate or hold the conversation from your understanding. You know, on the website, the Awakening Truth website, I put it in the back. You know, there's a place called Resources, and under Resources there's a subtopic called Topics Related to Nuns. And then topics related to nuns are some certain articles and references and things about all of this stuff. So there's some there's some material that's available on the website about it. Also, the the most recent blog post that I did is a story about the ordination and some of the circumstance that surrounded it and why the why the situation that the sisters were in was so precarious. That's all on the website. So, you know, there's information available to have access to, and then some of those articles have lists of other references about, you know, bhikkhuni ordination. I think there's a reference of uh, bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, conversation about the importance of the bhikkhuni ordination. So there's stuff, you know, and you guys know about research. That's your specialty. That's your middle name, you know. (laughs) So, you know, in a way that works for you, you know in a way that feels right, in a way that feels true with what your deepest understanding is, you know, from there. That's where you present. All right? Good. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.